welcome. This is a message from Victory Church. We trust you'll be inspired and encouraged by today's message. Tonight, um, I'm going to look at a question that many people have asked, and it's a question that revolves around the issue of forgiveness. Um, a German poet named Heinrich um, Hein, he found the gospel... <laughs> Did you like that? Did you like that? <laughs> I didn't even do German at school. Was... Hey, speaking of languages, did you like Desi's uh, language that he was speaking? So anyone want to guess what that is? I'm not going to tell you. But that was cool. Pete and Desi loved it. One of them was speaking a proper language. <laughs> so Heinrich Hein said this. He, he lived a couple of hundred years ago. He said this. He said, if we sin against one another, we are required to forgive one another. He lives in a, within a Christian culture, and so he knows the requirement of forgiveness that was in society that ultimately came from the Bible. He says, we're even warned of the consequences if we refuse. Maybe thinking about, you know, unless you forgive those who sin against you, I won't forgive you, etc. Um, he says, why then can't God practice what he preaches and be equally generous? No one's death is necessary before we forgive each other. Why then does God make so much fuss about forgiving us and even declare it impossible without his son's sacrifice? It sounds like a primitive superstition which modern people should long since have discarded. And he lived a couple of hundred years ago, as I mentioned, but he's not alone in his thinking. Uh, I guess a more modern example many of us would have seen or heard of Richard Dawkins, and he, he says exactly the same thing. Why couldn't God, if he's all-powerful, why couldn't he just forgive our sins? And that's the title of my message tonight. Why couldn't God just forgive us? It's a good question. Um, why couldn't he just forgive us without all this you know, nasty crucifixion business you know, that we've, we've sung about? We've sung about a man being crucified. We've talked about a man being killed on our behalf, and we've been quite excited about that fact. I mean, that's pretty sick when you think about it, really. But what's that about? Because I understand that that is difficult for some people to swallow. But I want you to bear with me this evening as we look, take a little journey. And again, if you don't believe the Bible, we, I absolutely believe the Bible is true. I believe it's the inspired word of God, not just because someone told me to, but because I've looked into it. I think there are so many evidences that support the validity of the Bible. And I think one of those evidences is the fact that it actually works in real life. Okay, you can live according to the Bible, your life will go well. You can live against what the Bible says and your life and indeed the society in which you live will begin to crumble around about you. Okay, so we talk, we've talked about that in the past and I would encourage you to maybe see us afterwards, see myself or one of our other leaders <clears throat> if you'd like to know more about how you can you know, actually know whether the Bible's true. Because I'm speaking from a premise of truth of the Bible this morning, or this evening here, today. So it's a good question, but it's probably the wrong question saying, why doesn't God just forgive us? The question probably we really should ask is something more like this. In the light of who God is and of who we are, how is it possible that God forgives us at all? In the light of who God is and who we are, how is it possible that God forgives us at all? You see, for us, forgiveness is it's like the plainest duty. It's like we're all in this together. You mess up against me and I need to forgive you and, and I mess up against you and I ask you and expect you and want you to forgive me. And it's, it's quite, you know, that's the way we live. That's the world we live in. But for God, forgiveness is the profoundest of problems. And we're going to look at why 
as we go along this evening. See, God is perfect in his divinity. He's all-knowing, he's all-seeing, he's just, absolutely. And he's also all-loving, and that's great. But you see, we, as human beings, are in rebellion to God. And so God has got this massive problem. God's got a problem, and it's us. And it's what does he do with us? And that's what we're going to have a look at tonight. So I'm going to start off by looking at who we are, who we are. In the Bible, we find out the fact that people are sinners. Now, that word right now is probably pretty offensive to some. Some of you, it's like, ah, oh, yes, yeah, sinners. I, you know, I've been called that all my life. <laughs> been in church all my life. I understand what it means to be a sinner. But others, it's like, that is just like, man, I'm so annoyed I've come to church right now. How dare you call me a sinner? How dare you insult me like that? Well, just bear with me, please, okay? Just bear with me. Don't get too nervous. You know, because we are not here, as I mentioned before, to twist your arm or to cover you in false guilt. You know, some people think, oh, the church, they just want to put all this false guilt on you. You should be just had to get out and live your life and do what you like and not feel bad about it. And the church just wants to come along and ruin that sense of contentment by making you falsely guilty. And certainly there are probably some individuals and some churches, you know, around that, that are probably doing that to some degree. We're not one of those, okay? We want to get to the truth of the matter here tonight. But before you just, you know, write off the church with false guilt, just be open to this possibility as too, that if there's false guilt, there is such a thing as false assurance. And there are many, many people out there today walking around with false assurance or promoting false assurance. I mentioned Richard Dawkins before, and uh, many of you have heard of him. And, and um, one of the things he did recently, he had a, a bus campaign where he actually got this put on the side of buses. There is probably no God in massive writing. There is probably no God. So stop worrying and enjoy your life. That's great if there's no God, like literally no God, but probably is not good enough for me. I don't know about you, but I'm not going to just throw everything out that I believe, just on the basis of probably. I mean, this guy is a renowned atheist and he can only say probably? That's a little bit scary to me. Anyway... So the Bible tells us that we are sinners. And if you don't believe the Bible, why not just take a look inside your own heart for a moment? Can you believe your own heart? Can you believe possibly that you are not as good as you possibly would like to think you are? You know, the Bible talks about, or in the New Testament, this word sin actually is a culmination of five different words at different times. And essentially, all those words mean essentially one of two things. Sin is about missing the mark, Falling short of the goal, or it's about trespass, going somewhere where you shouldn't go. So if you think about it, you know, you're a footballer, um, and you know, there's that sort of 50 metre kick, and the idea is you want to get it through the goals, and you kick it, and you're not quite strong enough or good enough, or the wind's going the wrong direction, or, and it just falls at 40 and gets marked. Like, that really sucks, doesn't it, if you're a football player or if you're watching your team? That's falling short of the mark. Or alternatively, what about the guy that's like 10 metres out? Open goal. That's, that's me. <laughs> I do that all the time. <laughs> missing the mark, missing the goal. That's, that's what sin is. Okay, we're just not getting what, where we're supposed to be. Or alternatively, it's trespassing. 
It's going somewhere. There's some boundaries marked out clearly. You're not supposed to go in this area, but nonetheless, knowing what we're not supposed to do, we end up there. And again, who of us has ever found ourselves doing things, saying things that we know we're not supposed to do? We know how we should treat one another. And yet when push comes to shove, stuff squirts out that we're not proud of, but nonetheless it's there. That's sin in a nutshell. We don't need the Bible to tell us that we struggle with this issue. None of us, never mind what a biblical requirement might be with regards to righteousness or holiness or goodness, we can't even live up to our own ideals. I mean, think about last start of this year, 1st of January. What did we do, many of us? The old New Year's resolution comes out because we realised that we missed the mark. We fell short the year before in an area. And so we have this resolution. We're going to do this differently this year. I'm going to treat someone differently. I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to whatever it might be. And yet invariably within days, possibly if you're really good weeks, maybe if you're almost perfect months, but you know, invariably some of the things that we resolve, they, they get history in no time flat. Because we just cannot live up to our own ideals, never mind the ideals of God. So that's, that's essentially what sin is. It's just missing the mark. Trespassing. Going against what we know is right. Now this whole concept of right and wrong, I guess the next question is, well, what is that? Is it just something that's a social construct? Is it just something that, you know, as time goes by, people get together and work out what's best, work, what works best, and we, we will agree that there's certain rules that we should abide by? Is it just that? And is it relative, depending on the time, the culture, and all that sort of thing? Or is there something bigger than that? Is there some universal moral code that innately all humanity from all time and across the face of the planet has been aware of? Maybe a code that originated with God Himself. The fact is, the Bible tells us that is actually the case. That these rules that we adhere to, these ideals that we hold as a society, these morals that we carry, are not just things that were dreamed up by a society and not even just dreamed up by God Himself. It's not like God sat down and thought, What can I do? What can I do to make their life a little bit more difficult? What can I do to keep them under control? No, the laws or the precepts of God are the Ten Commandments and, and the other laws that sort of flow out of those commandments are a reflection of the person of God himself. The precepts reflect the person of God. They're inextricably connected and linked to the nature and the character of God. And so when God says, you shall not bear false testimony, you know, modern translation, don't lie, it's because God himself is truth. And so he, will, he cannot violate himself, and, and he's, he's, we are made in his image. So to hit the mark is to be truthful like God is truthful. To be anything less than totally truthful is to miss the mark, is to be a sinner. It's not too hard, is it? <laughs> good, good. When God says, you shall not commit adultery, again, it's not that he's trying to ruin anyone's fun. Not that adultery is fun when I see the, the fallout and ramifications of that. But it's about... The fact that God is faithful. We are created in His image to be faithful like God is faithful. When God says, you shall not murder, it's because God is love. He wants us to treat each other in a manner that is becoming of ones that love one another. 
not to kill each other, not to steal from each other, not to get jealous of each other and all the things that go with that. God is trying to protect us from that. Okay, so the laws flow out of who he actually is. So when we sin, the problem is that it's not just some arbitrary law that we're breaking. It's actually a person that we're defying. That's the way God sees it. Because he established, he set us up as his family, created us in his image, had dreams and aspirations for us. And we've fallen short. Every one of us has fallen short. We've decided, whether we've, whether we've processed this or not, whether we've declared it openly or not, we've decided that we know best. We've decided that God doesn't quite know all, doesn't quite get where I'm at, and I'm different. I can do it my way. I don't have to do it his way. That's essentially the nature of sin. That's at the heart of every sinner, every person. And that's why in the Bible, when we, talk, when we see this relationship between God and being spoken about, it's often spoken about in terms of enmity or hostility. A couple of scriptures I'll read you quickly. It's Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. It says, once, and again, speaking to Christians in this context, it says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Romans chapter 8, verse 7, it says, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God, to God's law, nor can it do so. Romans chapter 5, verse 10 says, for if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Okay, so consistently we see this picture of, it's not that just that God's a little bit ticked with us or a little bit annoyed, frustrated by us. It's just that it's kind of like in our rebellion, we have openly declared war on God. We are at enmity with one another. There's hostility between us. And so biblically, sin isn't just a regrettable slip up. Biblically, it's setting ourselves against God, who God is. That makes sense. Excellent. I'm going to skip a little bit out here because I'm going to run out of time otherwise. You know, we're living in a society today that many people are very nervous and anxious and frightened by the word sin. They will do anything they can to shut up the church and to get us as Christians to try and stop making them feel guilty. They will replace this concept of sin with words like lapse or mistake or even culture. Sin is just too confronting. It's too awkward. It implies someone greater. It implies a bigger standard. And so I guess we need to be careful, you know, even as Christians, that, that we, we, we don't become so sensitive to where people are at that we actually try and rob them of their responsibility. Because we're called, we're accountable before God. So before you get too stressed out, just, you know, not that we're supposed to be comfortable about sin, but again, if you're here a little bit freaked out by this thought that you've just been called a sinner, well, the good news, or the weeny little bit of the good news, is that we're all in it together. Okay, Romans 8, uh, 3.23 says <clears throat> that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's not like you're the only sinner in the room. You're surrounded by him. Okay, we all mess up. We all, we all have offended God. We've all, at one time, if not right now, been at enmity with God. Okay, so that's, that's hopefully, at least, you know, we'll get you through the next hour or so. <laughs> the next day. Then it'll, you can breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief, but not too much. <laughs> no. 
The other thing is that to be held accountable to our sin by God is actually a compliment. It's actually a compliment. It's a reflection of our privileged position as children of God, as those created in his image. God didn't just say, oh, you can't help it, you poor old things. He didn't lump us in with the animals. You know, dogs do what dogs do. I've said this before, you know, if, if you've ever had a dog on your leg doing what it does, it's like, it's, they're creatures of instinct. There's no, there's no moral choice there. They're not making a decision. You know, it's just like they, they just felt driven to do a certain thing on your leg. <laughs> and it really, really irritates me when we see people behave like that. When people who've been given the ability to make choices based on thinking, based on what is right and what is wrong, when they're just driven by their instincts and don't worry about the consequences. We're created in God's image. We have choices. We're morally, morally accountable. Our choices are real. We might be fallen in sin, but at the end of the day, we're still created in the image of God. And so there's always hope in that. And God is absolutely committed to us. He hasn't given up on us. And that is the beginning, I guess, of the good news. The fact remains we are sinners, all of us. We're incapable of living up to not even our own ideals, never mind God's. But he hasn't given up on us. So that's the first thing. That's us. That's what we're like. And again, we live in a world that is devastated by sin. You know, we live, I guess when I think about sin, you know, we are so used to so much sin that it's almost like water off a duck's back for us now. It's like living in a city full of smog, and if you've never tasted fresh air, you just get used to the smog, and you think, well, that's what's the way it's supposed to be. And you and I are conditioned to living in brokenness and seeing families shredded and seeing you know, dishonesty and, and seeing an increasing crime rate and seeing all sorts of things going on that, that you know, that they're, they're annoying and frustrating, but you know, we're just used to it now. That's, that's what we're living in. But God is saying, no, there's something beyond that. It's like, come out to the mountain air. This is kind of the picture of heaven. If you like. This is a picture of God's intention compared to the smog and the heaviness of living in the city. And that's, you know, we are surrounded and, and, and covered in the thickness and the heaviness of sin when we're just used to it. So we don't see it for what it really is. Okay, that's our predicament. So we've talked about how we are, but what about how God is? Is it going to get any better when we talk about how God is? Are we going to feel any more settled? Well, let's see. Because it's not just the sin of man that is actually the problem. It's the reaction of God to the sin of man that we need to consider. Often when we talk about this whole issue of sin and forgiveness, we make the, we, we make the mistake of reducing God to our level or elevating ourselves to his level. You know, we project the way we see sin onto him. And like I said, we're used to it. We think, oh, it's not that bad. But God never intended a marriage to ever break down. He never intended a child to ever be abused or a woman to ever be raped or someone to ever have to come home to a house that's been ransacked. He never intended that ever. It's totally beyond him in terms of the way he is. And it was supposed to be beyond us, but we've fallen in sin. We think that God doesn't care that much we think that what we did isn't that bad. But that's not the view of Scripture when it comes to sin and when we're talking about God. 
We see that whenever a sinful person, even the very best of the sinful people, we've got a, a list of them here you know, in front of me, Moses, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Peter, John, these guys are the good guys in the Bible. Okay? But we see that even when these guys, the cream of the crop as far as humanity is concerned, when they come before God, the reaction's always the same. When they get close to the tangible presence of God, it's always face down, fear, panic, woe is me, I'm undone, I'm a person of unclean lips, I'm, I'm living a bunch of, I'm filthy before God. Such is the, just the, the, the coming into the presence. I mean, you've, you know what that's like. You come into someone who's that much better than you are. Whether we're talking morally, or whether we're just talking even in terms of their skill set or whatever, it's, it's intimidating. It does something to us. How much more when we who are, who are, who are stained in sin come into the presence of one who is absolutely pure and absolutely holy. And not only that, but he knows what we're thinking. He knows, he's seen all that we've done. We can't hide anything. And it's kind of like the revelation of that hits you like a ton of bricks. It's not like you're sitting there thinking, oh, God doesn't know anything. It's like suddenly it's like he's just like x-ray vision goes straight through and you're standing there. You've become aware of who you are really and what you've done and the, and the magnitude of what you've done. And you're standing before the exact opposite of that. You know, there's many metaphors, if you like, that kind of describe this relationship between God and people. You know, one is that just that, the idea of height, that he's high and lifted up. That God is beyond our, our grip, our grasp, our reach. The other one is, another one is distance. You know, when Moses had his first encounter with God and the burning bush, it's kind of like, come no closer. Don't come any closer. You're on holy ground. Moses couldn't press in any closer under threat of his life, really. This concept of light is another one. It talks about God being hidden, inaccessible light. And again, if you've ever been woken up with a torch shining in your eyes, or even if you've ever held a torch up to your hand and thought, oh, that's cool, skeleton. <laughs> you know, that, that, that sense, as I mentioned before, of just being exposed as God, his inaccessible light, his light that is so powerful and so pure, just, you, you almost become transparent before him. There's the image of fire, God is a consuming fire. And our sin is like a, like a petrol-soaked rag to him. You can't bring your sinful presence into the presence of the holy fire of God. Yeah. Only one thing's going to change, and it isn't going to be God. Yeah. <laughs> Only one thing's going to remain, and it will be God. <laughs> Another metaphor is the image, the lovely image of vomit, <laughs> spew. You know, in the Old Testament, it talks about that if the people sin, that ultimately their land will spew them out. And we see that in the church in Laodicea in Revelation where, where John is writing to the churches and it says, you know, to the, you know, I'd rather you were hot nor cold, not lukewarm, I want to spew you out. And God, it makes him ill, this sin in our lives. Not us, he loves us, but the sin that contaminates our life, he cannot and will not tolerate. That's the God who ultimately every one of us is going to stand before. So those things ultimately just highlight the gravity of our problem. We are sinful people. He is a holy God. But the problem is that we're created to do life with God. And so what that means is that there's a massive void left in our lives. 
Because we, you know, I think it was Luther spoke about, you know, there's, every person has a God-shaped hole in their life. And you know, many people try and fill that with all sorts of things. And so you know, there's this revelation of, of something missing in our lives. But at the same time, a massive sense of separation from God. It's a bleak picture. And when you think about the responses of the world around about us, I guess there's, there's three responses to it. One will be just to live for the moment. You know, the Bible talks about live, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die is, the, is the, the maximum of some people. And maybe that's just getting involved in some extreme pursuit. Maybe it's, it's just getting as, as rich as you can so you can have as many pleasures as you can. That's living for the moment. Maybe it's trying to ignore the moment. You know, we see people responding to this, this sense of purposelessness, this, this fear of the unknown, this uncertainty about the future, by just, or even just the, the, the weight of their present. And they try and just disappear in the, in the haze of drugs or alcohol and other things. And some people try and escape the moment. And again, we live in a society that's riddled by suicide. And, and again, just, just this week in Adelaide, we've got a guy setting up a clinic or at least the, the beginnings of a clinic to, to try and you know, deal in death, euthanasia. It's a, it's a bleak picture outside of God for humanity. Yeah. Fortunately, it doesn't stop there. You know, Christianity is the good news. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ, which means the good news. In the scriptures, we read things like, in Psalm 85, verse 10, it says, Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. In Hebrews, uh, sorry, Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2, we see a cry of the prophet. He says, Lord, in wrath, remember mercy, because God had been revealed not just as wrathful, but as merciful as well. In John chapter 1, verse 14, we see that Jesus, the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Romans chapter 11, verse 22, we say, Consider therefore the goodness and the severity of God. The good news for us is that every scary thing about God is tempered with something about God that is not so scary and actually quite wonderful. If God was just just, that is extremely, extremely frightening to people who have not measured up to his standards. But God is not just just. He's loving and patient and kind, etc., etc., etc. And so those verses, all of them just contain complementary truths about God. It's not like one thing at the expense of the other. It's like God is all of these things simultaneously. He's not sometimes good and sometimes severe. He's actually always good but severe when it comes to the issue of sin. It's not that he's sometimes wrathful or angry or reactional to sin and sometimes merciful. It's just that sin always causes his wrath to rise, but at the same time, God is always looking for the opportunity to be merciful and to extend grace to people. It's not like sometimes he's grace and sometimes he's truth. It's like he's always gracious, but he always operates according to truth and to reality. These scriptures warn us, I guess, of the danger of just going for one or the other. We see sometimes, you know, even as Christians, it can be, we can tend to drift towards a God of love at the expense of the God who is just. And we see just a licentious Christianity, one that doesn't really worry about people's predicament 
and ultimately the gospel doesn't go forth like it should. Then we get others who, who focus on the justice of God and they become quite harsh and legalistic and you know, finger-pointing and all that. Sort of, and and, you know, and they, they misrepresent God on either side. Well, we need to be able to try and hold, hold intention. All the revealed characteristics of our God. He's not an indulgent father who's just spoiling his kids and, and continually ignoring their bad behaviour and letting them get away with it. At the same time, he's not vindictive and impossible to please. Not always just looking for an opportunity to trip us up and ultimately to judge us. Those things are just caricatures of God. That's not really who God is. So I guess the question we're left with, or some questions, is how can God, who is absolutely holy and beyond us, how can this God, who is inflexibly righteous, how can he deal with us without consuming us, without having to bring the full weight of his righteous response onto us, sinful people? And at the same time, how can he express his love without condoning our sin and just pretending it all doesn't really matter anyway. The answer is found in Jesus, and we've sung about this already tonight. On the cross, Jesus substituted himself for us. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5 says this, He was pierced for our transgressions, okay, our stuff-ups, our wrongdoing. Who's ours? He was crushed for our iniquities, our wickedness, our evil behaviour. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. That's the gospel. It's like God has this predicament. How do I in love respond to this people that if they get too close, even if I hug them, there'd be nothing left to hug? Because my very nature would consume them. My wrath against evil. So God comes up with this master stroke of genius. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 says, For what I received, I passed on to you as first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, this transaction takes place. You and I as sinful people somehow are included into God's family given righteousness, right standing with God because of this transaction that took place on the cross over two, or nearly 2,000 years ago. That's, that's what happened. It's like Jesus, who did nothing wrong, bore the rap for us. I mean, the essence of sin, if we come back near the beginning, is us, or man, putting himself in God's place. Remember at the beginning, you know, if you eat from this tree, you'll become like God, knowing all things. You'll have the knowledge of good and evil. It's like, oh, cool. If we can do that, we won't need God. And we've been doing that ever since, trying to do things our own way, making ourselves the boss. 
That's what happened essentially in the beginning. And so the essence of sin is that man substitutes himself for God. But on the cross, God, Christ, substitutes himself for man. The essence of sin is that man asserts himself against God. And the essence of sorry, it was, and put ourselves where only God deserves to be. But on the cross, we see Jesus put himself where we deserve to be. It's an amazing transaction. It's totally beyond our comprehension. It is something that we could not have mastered. You know, our, our effort is to try and do better. The trouble is, you know, I, I try this one day. You know, if you get caught speeding, it's not like, oh, look, I'll go out and do 60 k's for the next hour and work it off. You know, if you've been doing 80 in a 60 zone, like, there is a penalty to be paid. That's it. It doesn't matter how good you are after that. You're still going to fix that, that fine up. And that's like it is with us. And yet we, we are you know, born into sin. We, you know, from the very earliest age, we, we exhibit this, this infection of sin. We do our own thing. We say no. We, we go where we shouldn't go. And we find it impossible to do even the good that we want to do for ourselves. And we think that at some point in life, we're going to try and make it right. We've got no show. The only hope we have is what actually happened on the cross. Every other religion across the world is, is about that whole pursuit of trying to please God once we've already messed up. God acknowledges, knows that we've messed up, but he provides a solution that works for us. Instead of inflicting on us the judgment we deserve or the punishment we deserve, he punishes sin fully and absolutely, but not in us. You see, you or I standing before God receiving the full weight of our of our, our judgment, there's nothing left. But when God puts himself in the picture, the indestructible, everlasting, all-powerful God, he can handle it. And that's what he did. He stood in our place on our behalf that we might have the righteousness that was his. We can be the recipients of God's justice and his love and his mercy without justice having been denied. Again, it would be a horrible thing if God denied himself. Imagine if, think about it this way, you know, there, there are certain things that our universe exists on and that, that we take for granted, but imagine if gravity one day just was no longer gravity. I mean, this, this world is designed to work with gravity in mind. Yeah? And this world works because there is a God in heaven who is just and a God in heaven who is holy and who is loving, etc. Et if God one day just decided, ah. Oh, I'll just overlook that. We're all, in, we're all in trouble. Because that God is no longer truthful, that God is no longer faithful, that God is no longer reliable. And we'd be left with sin for always and ever as part of our experience. If God just did forgive us, like Dawkins suggests we should, or Hines suggests we should, all it would prove is that we're, really, we're not that bad and God's not that good. And that's a massive problem that most people don't think about. So why, shouldn't God, why should God not forgive us or just forgive us? It's the wrong question. The right question is in light of who God is and who we are, how is it possible that God forgives us at all? The two-word answer to that, Jesus Christ. He is the one that makes the way for that forgiveness. In him, righteousness and mercy kiss. 
in him, every person who will just receive his gracious offer of forgiveness, having believed it, that substitution will take place, that transaction will take place, and we're going from being enemies of God and sinners to being sons of God and the righteousness of Christ in God. This is the end of the message. Thank you for taking the time to listen, and God bless.